Amen. So we listen together today to the second chapter of Philippians. Uh, I continue my goal of preaching through the book of Philippians in one month, four sermons, four chapters, so chapter two today. And so by means of reminding you what happened last week, uh, we, spoke, uh, we spoke primarily about, about suffering and then secondly about a conflict. And perhaps you remember that one line we found in, uh, if, uh, in Philippians 1 where Paul says that he's, uh, he's suffering, although he's in prison, is for the sake of the gospel. It is for the sake of Christ. And we reminded ourselves that actually he's not just in jail for Christ, verse 13 of chapter 1, but his imprisonment is in Christ. So his suffering is in Christ. And this idea of, of being in Christ is what permeates the whole letter that Paul writes to the Philippians. He's going to talk about their unity and their humility and their joy in the passage we're about to read. And the foundation for our unity, our humility, and our joy is again the fact that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. So that's the one aspect we saw last week. The second aspect we saw last week is that it was fighting talk. It was talk to prepare people for a battle, for a conflict. You might remember how chapter 1 ended. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should uh, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. So he spoke about conflict and how we are to oppose conflict. Uh, and so I hope to extend those two themes today as we carry on reading Paul's letter. What is the immediate context? The context, of course, was Philippi is a Roman town filled with uh, Roman soldiers that's been pensioned off. So they are deeply nationalistic, patriotic to the Roman Empire. Uh, they are fierce, battle-scarred soldiers that are walking the streets of Philippi. And in this community, God has started a church, the Christians in Philippi. And so it's in this community uh, that they will face conflict. And it's in this community that they will need to remember that they are in Christ and not in Caesar. And so let's carry on to hear how that language uh, extends from chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And I rejoice with you all likewise. You also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him. Who will, who will be genuinely concerned for your, your welfare? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with him, uh, with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. It's a, it's a fantastic letter. I mean, I love uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians because it's an actual letter. It is not like the letter to the Romans, which feels like a theological dissertation. If ever you've read the letter to the Romans, it is carefully crafted. It's like he, he had a keyword outline that he started with and he then built his argument and he had these major turning points. And it, it's, a, it's kind of a, 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 major, a major study that he did there. And, um, and the humanness of it all gets a little bit lost in all the doctrine but this one as you've heard just now well it's it's very human and and i think that's the bigger picture we need to get before we dive into chapter two is paul is reminding us that the christian life is not flat it's not smooth it's it's not been it's not being flattened out so that it's all just one thing or another no it's got highs and lows it's got it's got illness and it's got joy. It's got anxiety and it's got worship. It's got everything in between. It's got friendships. It's got sacrifices. It's people risking their lives. It's people gaining their lives. It is just full of texture and depth. And if there's anything that I can do for you today, it is to help you see that the Christian life is not simplistic. It's not one-dimensional. Above all, it's not flat. It's got depth. It's got texture. And this is vital because as we live together as a church, some of us are going through highs and some of us are going through lows. And the whole Christian life uh, means, to, means to speak to both the highs and the lows. And, and as a community, we live with one another through the highs and the lows. We are not going around constantly flattening, flattening people's experiences, either of deep sorrow 
or of high joys. We, we don't constantly go ahead and, and flatten the peaks and fill up the troughs. No, we go with them into the depths. And we go up with them into the heights. And so it is looking for a mature Christian community that can do this. And the reason I say this, and I won't preach any of that, but from verses 19 to 29, you get this personal insight. Paul is saying, look, I want to send Timothy to you, and me, myself, I also want to come and visit you in Philippi, but I'm stuck in Rome at the moment. And then he speaks a bit about Epaphroditus. He calls Epaphroditus uh, his brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier, and a messenger, and a minister. How many hats does this man wear? It helps us to see that it's not just simplistic. The Christian life is, is full. It's, there's, there's depth there. And look at their experience. This Epaphroditus is one of the Philippians who's come from Philippi to visit Paul. And when he came to Rome to bring a gift from the Philippians to Paul, he got ill there. He got ill and he was trapped. He couldn't go back. In fact, he got so ill that they worried he was going to die. And Paul is saying that if he was going to die, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow. He's anxious about this. And he knew Epaphroditus was anxious about this. So it gives us a little insight into the early church. It's not a church where there were no illnesses, no sorrow, no hardship. Here's something very real, very practical. Uh, and it, of course, raised their desire to, to be united again more than ever before. I'm more eager to send him there for that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. This is a human being speaking about real relationships that gets restored and that go through the mill and, and of suffering. But he, he's yearning, he's longing for their moment that they can rejoice in each other's company again. Okay, so that by means of introduction, the point of this passage today is going to be to stop you, to help you to not view the Christian life in a simplistic way. And now let me give you two simplistic ways that I will try and speak against. The, the one is the, the simplistic view of the Christian life that it's all about humility. It's all about humility. And so every response that you give to every response uh, to, to, to every situation that you might face in life is by default the simplistic response of humility. Why? Because this text, Philippians 2, is the text about all texts about humility. Christ humbled himself by taking on human form, dying on a cross. And, and so... So that shapes your entire view of the Christian life. Your response in all and every circumstance should be one of humility. True. But that's not all that's true. Now what's the other danger we want to avoid? It's the Stephen Furtick or Joel Austin or Joyce Meyer's response to suffering. And that is that all life should be prosperity and happiness and, and bright shining lights. The Christian community is supposed to be vibrantly successful uh, and, uh, and prosperous in everything that they do. The church is full of healthy, beautiful, well-dressed, well-manicured people and everyone else might feel a little bit out of place. Both of these are two very simplistic views of the Christian life. And actually, the right way to live is in the gap in the middle. And I thought about an illustration that might help us to understand this. And um, I don't know how many of you can remember the children's story. It might only be Shiloh amongst us that can remember the children's story of Cinderella. You know the story of Cinderella a little bit. When I said that, Rachel didn't remember the story of Cinderella. And then I started telling the story and she remembered the story. So let me retell the story briefly and show you that the church has far more in common with Cinderella than we think. 
Cinderella. The story, of course, is of uh, four sisters. Three of them are stepsisters of the younger sister. Uh, and these three stepsisters are older than the younger sister. And they use her and abuse her as a servant to them. And so the pictures, if you look through the children's books, you'll see the pictures of, uh, of, of, of Cinderella just sifting through the cinders. So that's one translation of her name. She cleans the, the fireplace and she's got rags on and she's always sweeping up and cleaning. And her sisters are dressed gloriously in fancy clothes. Uh, and they have her young, their younger stepsister serving and waiting on them all the time. Then the prince sends out invitation to a ball. And uh, the, the younger sister is forced to dress up the older sisters. And so she humbly serves uh, and she scurries around them constantly, making sure everything is pretty and their hair is puffed up and they've got the light clothes on and so on. And then she expresses the desire to also go to the ball and immediately she's cut down. No, this is not for you. This is not for you. You're in rags. You're no one. You're a servant. And off they go to the ball. And when she is, while she is at home, a fairy godmother visits and with her magic wand, she, uh, she touches Cinderella's clothes, her rags, and they turn into glorious, in a glorious fine dress. Uh, she commands her to go and collect a pumpkin, and she takes the pumpkin. If it's touched, it turns into a coach, beautifully gold embellished coach. She says, you need a fancy uh, coach driver, and she collects a rat that is touched by the magic wand, and he turns into a fancy coach driver. And four mice to pull the coach are turned into horses. And she arrives at the ball, and when she arrives at the ball, very quickly she steals the eye of the prince who sees her. And he dances with her, and he wants to dance with her the whole evening, but she remembers what the fairy godmother said. He said, before 11, you've got to disappear. And so she makes it just in time she disappears. The second time she goes out again to another ball that the prince arranges in order to meet her. And she skims all closer and closer to the time of leaving so at five minutes before 11, she runs off and thankfully she makes it before she turns back into rags and the coach into a pumpkin and the mice, the mice, the horses into mice and so on. And then the last evening she makes it, but only just a minute before 11, she runs off. And as she runs off, the prince wants to ha hold on to her, but he loses his grip on her. She disappears, loses a slipper and into the night she goes, her clothes turns into rags she arrives at home as secretly safe and then the prince of course sets a plan into motion to find his love uh, and he searches far and wide for anyone whose foot will fit the glass slipper that he has left and then everyone tries of course and finally Cinderella's foot slips into the slipper it's a perfect fit he recognizes her and he takes her to be his wife and happily ever after there's various versions of the story. I told you my version. <laughs> There's various versions of this story. And, and I think it's a great metaphor for the Christian life. It wasn't intended as such, but I think we need to stop for a moment and think about this. We have, as the church, a propensity to take a Cinderella posture to life, a servant girl posture to life. And that certainly is true that we are called to emulate the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ, who suffered in silence and laid down his life. And we are not to emulate the life of the stepsisters who are proud and boastful and superior. 
And so it's right that we avoid that. Humility is a virtue. But do not mistake humility for weakness. And do not lose sight that at the end of humility is the real aim, and it's that of glory. That of glory. Let me show that from the passage. This is Jesus' life. And Jesus' life, as far as I can tell, is played out again in the life of the church. So we study Jesus' life, we can study the life of the church. Jesus' life. And for this, we have to take a moment to consider that Jesus speaks in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about his incarnation, his life, his death, his crucifixion, as humble suffering. That's how it's presented to us. But, but John's gospel is unique. John's gospel turns the narrative around. That all that Jesus goes through, from his incarnation, his life, his, his crucifixion, all of it's under the cover of his glorification. And let me show you some of that. It's a bit hard to understand what I'm about to do without my following illustration. So let me give you this illustration. This might help you. Jesus serves humbly, but he serves humbly as Cinderella after she's experienced the gaze, the loving gaze of the prince. The next morning she is sweeping up the dust, but with a song in her heart because she knows glory is coming. He won't rest until he's found her. He won't rest until he's married her. She knows that to some extent. Jesus' life of suffering and humility is a suffering and humility that constantly has his eye on glorification. And here's the metaphor. I recently found myself in a humble place. Some might say the humblest of all places. And that is on my back with my head slid in between the toilet bowl of a toilet I don't own uh, and the bath of a bath I don't own. And I did this because there was a leak, a leak under the bath that could only be fixed if one were to slide on his back with his head into this hole, sticking his hand in behind the bath to tighten the, the, the bolt at the back. Why did I do that? Humble? No. I did that because whilst I was doing that, I had my eyes fixed on the moment I get up from fixing the leak that has been dripping through into the living room by tightening the bolt. I humbled myself because I had my eye on the glorification that will come when I stand up and say, it's done. It's finished. This is, I'm convinced, what the Lord Jesus did in his humility. And let me take you on a whistle-stop tour through John's Gospel to hopefully show you some of that. The first of it comes along at the wedding at Cana when Jesus is asked or told by his mother that they've run out of wine and Jesus says quite strangely, my hour has not yet come. Uh, Jesus hints at the fact that whatever will happen when he is to suffer is something that he will be in charge of. He will know when it's happening and he will lead it and he will be in charge of it. That's the first hint you get in John's Gospel. He makes it a bit more explicit in John 3. Now we know John 3.16. If you're not a Christian, you might even know this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But the line just in front of it is this. And as Moses, was uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
Now, Jesus knew that his suffering will end in him lifting, being lifted up. Now, immediately we put over that the cover of his humiliation because we see the crucifix. But in Jesus' mind, as I continue to read through gospel, you'll see when Jesus means lifted up, he literally means lifted up to a high place. He means it's an act of his glory when he is enthroned on the crucifix. Let me carry on to show that. In, uh, in John 10, we read these words from verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. See what Jesus is saying? He is not being killed against his will. He is not being humiliated and being stripped from life against his will. No, he deliberately lays down his life in order to take it up again. Jesus is the humble servant, but he has his eye fixed on the lifting up, on the glorification. It's, far, it's clearest of all in John 8, verses 21 and 28, where Jesus speaks about the grain. It's not that's not the one about the grain. No, I've lost my place about the grain. Yes, yeah, John 12. Sorry, I've gone forward. In John 12, uh, Jesus speaks uh, about a, gra uh, uh, a seed of grain that has to fall into the ground in order to bear fruit. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. No, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I want you to see that Jesus' experience of the Christian life was not just one-dimensional flat in humility. And it's not just one-dimensional flat in glorification. It is humility in order to be glorified. He has, in all of his humility, his eye fixed on the being lifted up. On the moment when his hour comes, when he lay down his life in order to take his life again. To take it up again. He's got his eye fixed on the fact that his hour will come where he will be glorified. So if that is true, as a church we need to take this on board for a minute. We are called, yes, to humbly serve. We are called to humbly lay our lives down and to follow Jesus in all that we do. But can you look again at the passage that we're reading, Philippians 2? You look at verse 9. You see what it says. Therefore, being found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, and then a cascade of honors, the name that is above every name, uh, the, uh, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, yes, he humbled himself, but he knew the therefore of verse 9. He knew the therefore of verse 9, that therefore, because he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What does this mean for us as a Christian church? It means that, yes, we're embroiled in a conflict in this world. And a conflict that the Apostle Paul wants to prepare us for. But this conflict, as our suffering, is in Christ. And this conflict 
cannot be waged in the same simplistic way than, than every other military combat is fought. They've got weapons, we've got weapons. And simplistically, we clash with one another and the strongest wins and they carry on. That's not the picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is far deeper, far, uh, far more textured to it, can cope with far more than just a simplistic clash. I've been looking for illustrations of this. If the church is going to humbly emulate our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to serve humbly, we are constantly having to do that with our eye fixed on the glory that is ours. How would we fight if that is true? How would we fight if our eye is fixed on the glory that is ours? I asked my children for some examples. Um, Timothy was first to say that in Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it is a war, a battle at the end of the book, but fought by squirrels and birds and all kinds of other less scary, honorable creatures. Um, and that made, uh, made me think of the hobbits and uh, baggins that's fighting against smog in uh, an unorthodox manner, not with massive weapons of destruction, but uh, in other steely, sneaky ways. Not the best example, I'm sure. Stefan said, Dad, you've got to read The Lord of the Rings because Frodo and others are doing the same thing, fighting a very fierce battle, but in unorthodox ways. The, the weak fighting with a considerable encouragement because they know of strength that is theirs. That is my godly wife, of course, that came with the best example of them all. And it's in Joshua 6. It's in Joshua 6 where God's people are marching around Jericho. They're fighting a battle, not with weapons, but with songs. They're fighting this battle with the priests walking in the front with the Ark of the Covenant. And as they walk around the seventh time, they erupt in loud shouting and the walls come crumbling down. And Paul's intention in Philippians 2 is to say, yes, there is a conflict and you need to stand side by side with soldiers like Epaphroditus. But the weapons with which you fight, those weapons above them is just the words written in Christ. And from in Christ, there is unity. You're one. In Christ, there is not just unity, but there is humility in Christ. And these weapons, unity, humility, finally joy there is joy and it's in christ these are the weapons with which we fight as a christian church in the world that we live in now all in christ it's right there if you want to find it in verse 14 and 15 do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of god without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Can you see the weapons of the church is in Christ? Yes, we suffer in Christ. That was a sermon uh, last week. Uh, and now we face this conflict in Christ. And that's why chapter 2 starts with, so if there is any encouragement in Christ... 
And, and he's starting to roll out the jewels that is ours in Christ. And the first one is unity. What does unity look like apart from Christ? I grew up in a country under apartheid South Africa where the slogan was, Eendracht maak mag. Unity makes strength. What if unity is separated from Christ? Then that unity is used for other purposes. Unity in Christ is what the church is all about. Humility. What is humility without being in Christ? Well, it's Cinderella before she's been to the ball. It's Cinderella just sweeping after, after, after her sisters and constantly feeling superior, inferior and weak uh, and, and, and inconsiderate. No, inconsiderable. Just the nobody in obscurity. That is what humility looks like if it's not in Christ. But if it is in Christ, it is humility that has its eye fixed on the glorification that is ours in Him. It looks different. And what if our other weapon of war is joy? What if that joy is separated from joy in Christ? It becomes a hedonistic joy. It becomes a joy that is trapped in good things, wonderful things. But those things ultimately take the place of God. Having money, having health, having children, having church buildings, having, having things. Fill, up as, fill us up with joy apart from Christ. That is not the weapons with which we are called to face this battle. It is in Christ that we face this conflict. Now as I close, let me remind you where we can get the strength, the power to face the conflict that we are in with the weapons that are ours in Christ. The metaphor, of course, is this. That we are Cinderella and we have experienced and we will experience in a moment again the intimacy of the prince as he dines with us around his table reminding us that once he has set his eye on us he will not let us go he will hunt us down he will find us even if he had to put a slipper on everyone's foot until he finds his bride christ will not stop until his bride is safely with him that is the nature of our god but there is something more is emulated a little bit in the wedding at cana when the bridegroom gets the honor for the good wine you've seen that he gets the good wine people say oh why did you keep the wine to last the best wine and we don't hear him say no 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 i had nothing to no no it's, it's him it's him just jesus disappears into the into the shadows he is he has found joy in lifting up someone else that's true humility by the way and of course this is the heart of the god that we worship <laughs> the lord jesus himself is the one that at his baptism, he heard the Father say about him, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father and the Holy Spirit together say, they lift up the Son and say, there, it's him, it's him, your delight is in him. And then when Jesus gets a chance, what is it that he says? He says, pray like this, my Father who I heaven, hallowed be your name. What is it that the Son does? The Son does and say, it's all about the Father. And can you remember what we discovered uh, uh, in John 16 verse 7 when the Holy Spirit, uh, when, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he says, look, I'm going, I'm going away. And when I go away, I'm going to send you. It's better for you, to, for you that I go away so that you will receive the Holy Spirit. The Son rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit rejoices in the Son. And the Father rejoices in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. The God that we worship is a God that is humble with great deep strength as he 
delights in the other persons of the Trinity. And so the church, our weapon of loving war, our weapon of loving war, is to delight in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. It's to delight in Christ. It is as we lift up Father, Son and Holy Spirit as the bridegroom that will not stop until he's done everything to bring us safely home. As we delight in him, he delights in us. He says, this is my bride. This is my bride. This church is my treasured possession. You are the apple of my eye. I'm not going to stop until he's done. And there is the strength to face devastating disunity to know that God looks at us as his church one there is the strength to face proud and arrogant people the humility that comes from Christ there is the strength to have real joy in the midst of suffering that he is not done until he's done so church of Christ remember that in the Lord Jesus Christ finally when he is lifted up the place above all places he will be worshipped as a Lord of Lords Every, bee will, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of Lords. Let us join in that chorus now. And as we do, let us be filled up with strength to live lives of humble glory, knowing that it's not ours, but his. Happy pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word, your word of life. And it corrects some of our misunderstanding. We can easily think that life, the Christian life, is simple. It's just a life of humble suffering. Or we can make the mistake of thinking that the Christian life is all about triumph and prosperity and health and wealth. But you bring us into this place where you say, no, you are mine. There is a strength here that can never be shaken. You have said this in Romans 8.30, that those you justified... You sanctified, those you sanctified, you glorified. In the past tense, we are already glorified in your presence. We are hidden away, our lives are hidden away with God in Christ. That is our strength. And that is our source of unity. That is our source of humility. And that is our source of joy. So we ask... We ask that we will once again have a fresh and new encounter with your son, the Lord Jesus. As one writer says, if a, if a group of, of authors are meeting in a room and Shakespeare walks in, they will all stand up to honor him, might applaud him. But we know, Lord Jesus, if you walked into this room, we will bow down. We will kneel in humble submission to your Lordship. And that is our strength. You are our strength. The one who sits in thrones laughs and holds those that mock and ridicule your church in derision. And we are promised that with your, with your scepter you will rule over all that resist your authority. And for that reason we feel secure. We humble ourselves in full allegiance to you. We do this because you have first done it in us. From first to last, we praise you. Amen.